Hello and welcome back to Who Knew We Didn't, the podcast where we talk about different aspects of psychology and how it applies to our everyday lives. If you have listened to this podcast before, then you likely already know that I'm Megan and my partner in podcast here is... Marta! Hey! <laughs> well, lots of energy for me. Yeah. Uh, today we're going to be talking about pet psychology and by this we mean the effects of animals and pets on our own psychology, not like what's going on in a pupper's brain because that's a whole other type of yeah. episode but I, I did find a bunch of research about that in I, doing my research for I touch this. on that a little bit in my section oh do you like not necessarily what they're thinking but just like their dog's behaviors interesting mm-hmm. I started reading um the dog whispers book as I was researching this and I was like no no Megan there's like <laughs> this is a whole fucking book I can't be bringing this in it's also a fantastic though yeah I like it to is. think that I'm a dog whisperer but like I really only just whisper to my dog <laughs> Does she understand you? <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> She's like, food? Food. 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 Yes. Mm, food. Mm, bark. <laughs> uh, okay. So what inspired us to uh, to talk about this today uh, is, well, I, it was kind of my call on this one. I really want a dog. Like, I need a dog. And my Taylor and I, we just kind of long to raise a dog. It's all we talk about. And we want that connection that you get with raising an animal. And this has recently had me asking why do I crave this? Like, I love dogs. I think they're cute and I think they're sweet and all of that. Um, But they're a huge amount of work and a huge amount of responsibility. So why do I like truly crave it? Why do I want this so badly? So that's where I'm coming from in in choosing this topic for today's episode. Yeah. And I um, also am a dog lover. So we just got an awesome dog. (laughs) If you follow us on Instagram, then you've seen at least one or two pictures of her. Yeah. um, And we... Like, we started talking about this as if it's, like, going to be about pets, but I have no research at all about cats or rabbits or anything. Like, I have a little bit about cats. Okay, good. It's, it's, it's mostly about dogs, though, guys. Because <laughs> <Okay. laughs> dogs are... The best. Dogs are the best. Um, all right, so so shall we? We shall. All right, so uh, I want to start by talking about kind of how and why we form such strong interspecies bonds, uh, especially with dogs um, and those emotional connections. So uh, domestication has uh, led to a lot of interspecies friendships between two or more species that probably would not have naturally uh, occurred if not for domesticating animals. So over thousands and thousands of years, humans have domesticated a lot of different species for livestock and working animals, for household pets and companions. And now interspecies friendships have been reported kind of just across the board, mammals, birds, reptiles, all that shit. Um, And humans and dogs and cats are probably the most obvious and notable example of this in my example. And it's often um, compared to the relationship between a parent and a child, your relationship with your cat or dog. Um, The Humane Society of the United States reports that 65% of American households own a cat or a dog. A lot of people agree that they have an emotional bond with their dogs. And an important indicator of that bond is through separation and reunion experiences. Um, And like the dog's behavior in those scenarios, um, like approach latency, um, frequency of initiating physical contact, that sort of thing. It varies according to how familiar the dog is with the person. And this can be seen as like a, a snapshot of the dog's relationship with that human. Um, also things like, you know, tail wagging and body shaking and vocalization and all of that jazz. So when Kropka chooses to continue her nap instead of greeting me at the door, (laughs) I think that might just be her. No, that's just her. She's just sassy like that. Yeah. Um, I, my old dog at the farm, his name was the Colonel, and he was the best dog there ever could have been. Um, he, one time when I came home, uh, actually, I think it was the first time that I ever brought Taylor home to meet my parents. He was so, so excited. I got out of the truck and he saw me and started like howl, bark, cry barking. He was so happy to see me. He was beside himself. Like he was, he wanted to... He was so excited that he was barking, but he was overcome that he was crying. And so he like couldn't really bark, but he had to bark. And he was like all over. He just like totally broke down when he saw me. And Aww. we had a very long cuddle on the driveway because he That's was just so like cute. so happy to see me. Yeah. Um, Kropka, when she was a puppy, she used to like piddle. 
She used to pee when people came home. She's like, I'm so excited I could pee. She she, she did. didn't pee, but she does get very excited when, when people come She's to your house. She's the greatest. But only if you come over after five on a weekday. Because if you come over before five, she's like, this is sleeping time. <laughs> I'm not greeting you, nor am I expecting visitors. So if you come over, you'll get like an, a happy tail wag and like a head flop and acknowledgement. But that's it. If you come She's over. so funny. Before five. It wasn't the first time that I came to your house, but the second or third time that I came there, she got so mad at me when I only just pet her a little bit. She like shouted at me that I needed to stop what I was doing and give her lots of attention. We have a little ritual. Like I'll pet her right when I come in the door a little bit and then she wags her tail over like she wags her little body over to the carpet and I lay down on the carpet and I pet her. It's like a double pet. Oh, so that's my dog. Oh, Kafka. Um, okay, so so yeah, that uh, that sort of emotional bonds and domestication is where it starts. So, Marta, you were going to talk a little bit, I think, about convergent evolution. I am. How did you know? Oh, I'm a psychic. Because you told me to. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and, and, and that. <laughs> um, yes, I am going to talk about convergent evolution first. I'll give you guys a definition according to Science Daily. Um, it is a theory, or not a theory, but like a, a thingy. I never know the proper word for this in evolutionary biology, and it's the process whereby organisms not closely related uh, independently evolve similar traits as a result of having to adapt similar to similar environments or ecological niches. So. The idea with dogs is because we've been sharing our environments so much, like for so long, that if our environments change, both humans and dogs have to adapt mm-hmm. to these environments. And so we develop similar features or similar uh, genetic traits? genetic traits, yeah, um, that handle or that take care of these like differences or adaptations to the environment. But they're very similar traits genetically, and sometimes it's even the same gene. Whoa. Yeah. So... That's really cool. Uh, One thing that I found that has nothing to do with dogs and animals, I just like found it and wanted to say it here, um, is the uh, opposable thumbs. So many different uh, mammals have opposable thumbs. Primates, humans, monkeys, apes, lemurs have opposable thumbs. But, and they all function pretty similarly in all of those, but in pandas, they also have opposable thumbs, but they're completely different in in, in structure. Uh, pandas have six fingers, including a thumb, which develops from a wrist bone entirely separate from other fingers. Whoa. So, like, the thumb is, like, its own hand thing. Like, it's weird. Is it, like, a dewclaw? Or is it, like... I don't know that word. A dewclaw? That's, like, the claw down here on a cat. Oh. No, I don't know. It's just, like, there was a, um, like, an x-ray image of, like, opposable thumbs in primates, so... it's attached to the hand like it all is part of like one palm but in pandas it's the five fingers are all part of one palm but the thumb is not part of that palm it's just attached straight to the oh that's weird yeah anyway yeah it was really strange and like gives us even more reason to think that pandas are freaking weird is that why pandas fall down so much i wonder well maybe I watched like a two and a half minute video of like pandas just pandas falling. falling. It was yes, wonderful. So it was cute. so good. Especially baby pandas. Yeah, I know. They oh. just like tumble. They try to do, they just try to like look over their shoulder and fall over. <sighs> They're ridiculous. Same. So. <laughs> um, uh, so yeah, humans and dogs have shared environments. I'm going to go back to do- dogs um, and humans. So it's only obvious that we'd start developing the same genetic traits that help us excel at our environments. So a few examples of this is in Tibet, humans and dogs have evolved side by side to handle the high altitude in a way that humans and dogs not in Tibet have not. And it's actually the same gene that they've Whoa. evolved to have. Um, and what's interesting is like street dogs or like mutts kind of like on the street are becoming much, much more interesting to scientists now because these are the animals that are co-evolving with the people in those areas versus designer dogs like Kropka or Dash Hound. Like she might have been imported from Germany and so she's not adapted to the same environment that I am. So more interestingly is like the dogs that are bred and raised in the area where you are. Whoa. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a good day for, for street dogs and mutts. <laughs> That's really neat. Yeah. Um, scientists in China have also found evidence that dogs developed protection against malaria the same way that people in West Africa have. Um, the scientists were in China, but the dogs 
and humans were in West Africa, but they developed the same gene to protect against malaria. Huh. Even though, like, and dogs and humans are completely different species. Like, we don't have any, like, we have some stuff in common because we're both mammals, but, like, it's not like us and primates, for example. Yeah. So it's interesting that we're developing these things um, the same. So one tiny change in dogs' genes boosted their immune response to the malaria parasite. Geneticists reported. <laughs> That's cool. Um, I wouldn't even have thought that dogs would be susceptible to malaria. Because, like, I don't know. I never think of that, really. But, like... I didn't think of that either, actually. <laughs> like, uh, I wouldn't think that we would be um, susceptible to the same diseases. There are some diseases that are cross-species. Yeah, that cross-species. And, actually, there is one... I didn't include it in my written up study, but I came across it. And there's this parasite that cats carry, cat feces carry specifically that can affect humans. <laughs> and like there was a, I think it was an episode of the Joe Rogan podcast. No, I've heard this. It's why pregnant women aren't supposed to clean out their cat's litter box. Yes. Yeah. There's, I wish I wrote up more about this parasite, but it's actually crazy Whoa. what it does. And apparently the same parasite can act. Oh, oh, now I remember the parasite reduces feces fear um like fear instinct and fear behavior in humans so people who are infected with this cat parasite are like there's a correlation between people infected with this cat parasite and people ending up in the er for motorcycle crashes yeah yeah so like you're more likely to have this or it's more likely that they'll find that you have this parasite if you've been involved in a motorcycle uh, motorcycle crash than like any other reasons for being in the hospital because people who are involved in motorcycle crashes tend to take more high risk behaviors. Well, so, being on a motorcycle is kind of a high risk behavior in yeah. itself. So it's kind of like saying that shark attacks are caused by like it, it, ice cream sales because on hot days both shark attacks and ice cream sales go up. So like that's the correlation, but shark attacks actually have to, nothing to do with ice cream it's the hot day because people are swimming and eating ice cream on hot days but so it's like kind of a distant correlation but it's just interesting that neat yeah yeah it, um and so when it affects rats rats are actually less afraid afraid of cats so they are more likely to be eaten so like cat, the parasite like allows itself to be passed along this way so it makes rats less afraid of cats so that cats can kill the rat and eat it and so the parasite gets to infect the rat uh, infect the infect the cat again whoa yeah again if you guys want like actual numbers and like real facts it's a parasitic cycle right there <laughs> if you guys want real numbers and facts don't 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 come to me about it because i <laughs> didn't write them down but this is just what i learned about it and it was really fucking cool would you um, say it was on the joe rogan podcast i think it was on the joe rogan podcast but i will link it in the notes and let me make myself a note for that now all right one of the criticisms of this, uh, like, um, convergent ev evolution thing, or not even a criticism, but, like, this is an area we need to discover more in, is we don't really have comparisons between humor humans and other domestic animals, like goats and horses, so it's hard to know if par parallel evolution of our genomes is unique to humans and dogs because we're so close together, mm. or, like, if it's also happening between humans and cows and that sort of thing. I wonder if, like, the type of relationship we have with those types of animals would affect it because we don't really have, like, pet relationships. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, dogs are viewed by humans as a companion, whereas, like, a goat <laughs> is not I mean, as frequently a companion. If you're one of our listeners and you have a goat as a companion, reach out. I want to know how you wrangle that because aren't goats, like, super stubborn? Yeah, but dogs are pretty stubborn sometimes, too. Goats are stubborn, but it's also just like they're not, I don't know. You That's can't true. curl up with a goat the way that you can curl up with a dog. And, like, I don't know that you could house train a goat. Hmm, maybe not. Um, so this research on convergent evolution actually brought me into the world of how dogs became domestic dogs and how we took them out of being wolves. Um, and the idea is that dogs are more skilled at reading human social and communicative behavior than our nearest primate primate relatives and the idea is that they're also more skilled like the domestic dog is more skilled at it than the wolf um social communicative behavior is something like pointing a finger or nodding to something or like gesturing to something um and there's also 
uh, evidence to show that dogs know what a human cannot see in various situations. So, for example, my dog, she hides she hides around the corner when I'm in the kitchen because she knows that she's not allowed to like be begging and hunting in the kitchen while I'm in there. But the moment that I turn around or I can't see her, all I hear is like her little like paws like clicking across the floor because she's like, oh, she can't see me. Um, and there's actually been studies that dogs are more likely to approach forbidden food when a human's eyes are closed or blindfolded. Whoa. Yeah. Even when the human is in the same proximity of the food and facing the same way and everything. Uh, also, there's a study where uh, participants played fetch with a dog and the the thrower the participant would turn around when the dog would come back uh, and the dog would jog up to wherever the person was facing and drop the ball in front of the person's face so if you're like facing left or facing right or turning around completely like no matter how you go the dog will come at, up to your face so that you can see it so it's interesting that dogs have an idea of where a person is looking especially because humans aren't born with this ability babies actually develop this later on like the whole shared experience thing like where are you looking are you looking at the same place that i'm looking humans learn that like it's not huh yeah like, I think maybe it is, like, instinctual, but, like, we aren't born with it as babies. That's really neat. Mm -hmm. Do you think dogs are better at it than wolves because we've bred them to be? I'm getting to that. Oh, okay. Um, but on the social cognitive findings, uh, non-human primates are generally smarter than dogs. So this isn't to be confused with, like, dogs are smart. Uh, it's that dogs are specifically skilled at this like one area but primates in general are smarter than dogs like so, more intelligent yeah so they can find food based on other hints that a dog wouldn't understand such as um they come back into a room and a board that was in there is like tilted or something they'll know that the board was disturbed so they'll go check there um, or if something's misplaced they'll go check there because the food will probably be there versus a dog relies solely on its scent hmm um, so they might both find it, but like for different reasons. Yeah. Uh, the, the question that you asked me is if dogs have been like this social learning was selected for in the process of domestication, basically. Right. Yeah, I guess. Um, in, in so many words. <laughs> <laughs> um, and the, that's what like, I always thought too, that like we selected for it, that like the dogs that pay attention more to humans or the dogs that we selected and that wolves don't pay attention to humans. I think also um, probably aggression was a big part of it is something I always assumed that like they took um, the less aggressive, less dominant um, wolves and bred them to like domesticate. Mm -hmm. But there was a study in 2013 by Range and Virani. That name will come up again, the Vir Virani one. Okay. So I apologize for my pronunciation both times. Um, and it found that dogs and wolves are similarly able to follow humans pointing to find food. Huh. Um, they had two groups of dogs or they had two groups, one of dogs and one of wolves. And they had five conditions. Uh, one condition was that a dog was trained to go... They had like three locations in a field and a dog would pick up f food like they're um, they called it the, uh, the there was a demonstrator dog who would pick up food and then go drop off the food at one location. Um, and they did that with another dog or a wolf watching. And when. Uh, and they had another condition where the dog would go and pretend to drop off food, but there would actually be no food hold like in its mouth. Um, and it would drop it off at one location. And they did the same thing with a human. So a human would pick up food and go drop it off at one of the locations or a human would pick up nothing and then pretend to go drop it off at one of the lo locations. Um, and then there was another, um, the final condition was just a smell control to, so the dogs and wolves didn't watch anyone put anything anywhere. They just like, the scientists wanted to know how quickly dogs and wolves found food. By sniffing it, was, it out? Yeah. So it was just like a control condition. So to see mm -hmm. how much of this effect was mediated by like actually social clues, like watching somebody deliver the food versus how much of this is mediated by like they just smelled where the food was. So they timed the variable that they studied was how long it took the dog or wolf to find the food 
based on if it was a human or a dog dropping it off and what were the differences um, between that condition, like when there actually was food and when there was no food. So their find was their finding was there is no difference in interest when the human was a demonstrator. So when the dog is watching or when the wolf is watching, when a human is demonstrating like this is food, I am dropping it off here. Dogs and wolves paid as much attention. Oh, yeah. So this kind of like flips the idea on its head that like wolves are uh, dogs are like completely different from wolves that they aren't able to be domesticated that sort of thing like because they both paid as much attention and they both recognized these humans as whatever um an important thing to note was that these weren't wild wolves like they were wolves that were raised in the same environment as the dogs like they were all raised together oh okay yeah, but, like, they were wolves taken from the wild, and then, like, just the pups were raised in this place. Um, so that's something that's interesting to note. Uh, so that this means that wolves also pay attention to humans just like dogs do. Wolves do, though, pay less attention to uh, con-specific species. So that means an animal from their own species. So, like, wolves pay less attention to dogs. Than they do to humans? Than dogs do. So, oh. like, yeah, so dogs pay a lot of attention to other dogs. Wolves pay less attention. To dogs or to other wolves? Um, this this one, they used a dog. Oh, okay. And they just kind of generalized it. But I think wolves also pay less attention to other wolves. Hmm. Then, yeah, so I have here doggos pay attention to doggos. <laughs> um, interestingly, in the control, when there is no food, dogs still paid a lot of attention to humans. So when the human, would, like, pretended to pick up food and dropped it off, dogs still paid a lot of attention. But wolves were, like... Eh, never mind. So the idea there is that like maybe they're watching different things. Mm-hmm. So dogs are like, okay, let's watch the human versus wolves are like, the let's human has the no food. food. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then there's a caveat where there was an issue in the study where the demonstrator dog, so the dog that would go drop off food, um, didn't like to carry the food and sometimes would spit it out. And so this goes along with the idea that wolves watch food because uh, wolves might be more sensitive to the dog spitting out the food because they're like oh this is inedible versus dogs are like interesting yeah so like that could be the like the wild in them because they have to learn to avoid food that like is dangerous versus doggos are like ooh, all food that is given to me is safe or like that dog had it what is it i want to know yeah even though the dog spit it out i still want to know what it was yeah versus wolves were like oh that dog spit it out I don't if that want food it. wasn't good enough for that dog why would it be good enough for me yeah so that was a caveat to the study i took a really roundabout way of describing it but it's the idea that not all domestication in dogs is strictly because we selected and bred for it that some of the social learning or like social cognitive understanding was already in wolves as huh. it is so as long as the wolves were raised around humans, it's just as likely that they'll understand things. Hmm. There's another theory called the emotional reactivity hypothesis, and it says that dog-human cooperation was selected for in the course of domestication by finding that dogs have increased tolerance or by finding dogs that have increased tolerance and reduced aggression but this also is kind of flipped on his head by range and virani the same people but they also had ritter in the study and this was in 2015 so three years ago and the finding was that wolves are actually more tolerant of other wolves than dogs are of other uh, than dogs are tolerant of other dogs Hmm. so they the conditions were they had um one situation where they spread out a variety of meat and there was enough space for each animal to have their own piece of meat. And there was another condition where they had one large bone, but um, many dogs or wolves could be on the same, like eating the same bone at the same time. Um, dominant wolves allowed subordinate wolves to eat and subordinate, subordinate wolves more freely challenged and like acted out like hey no i want to stay here i want to be here um and the dominant wolves like didn't punish them for that so that shows a lot more tolerance versus submissive dogs didn't even try Hmm. when there was a dominant dog um and submissive dogs would back the f away if challenged i said here um and uh dominant dogs wouldn't even allow a challenge so like a dominant dog would actually nip at a submissive dog Wow. Versus wolves are more tolerant. So dogs pay attention more to other dogs than wolves do, but wolves are more tolerant of other wolves than dogs are of other dogs. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So. 
I don't know. They're just like some interesting findings. They don't exactly like disprove the idea that we like there are certain traits that we selected for in dogs because there definitely are right like the there's hunting dogs there's working dogs there's herding dogs and whatever and we definitely selected for those traits but some of the things they aren't like they aren't things that we designed they are hard hard coded like hmm. wolves can cooperate with humans um be, like as long as they're raised with them very cool mm-hmm. and that's that's about it that's about all the research on genetics that i had i didn't really talk about psychology at all (laughs) or cats or any other animal but that's all i have i think it's a good um baseline though for some of the stuff that i would like to talk about so let's take a quick break and then when we get back we'll talk uh more about human dog bonding and also animal assisted therapy Dun, 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 dun. That was good. That was really good. All right. So human canine bonding and animal assisted therapy. That's where we're going to next. So uh, I'd like to introduce you all to a man named Boris Levinson. Uh, hey, he- Boris. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) He wrote um, uh, Pet Oriented Child Psychotherapy and Pets and Human Development. So, a psychologist in the late 60s to 70s. Um, He's credited with discovering the benefits of assisted pet therapy. I have a question. Sorry. Oh, what? uh, I interrupted you completely. No. What did Boris look like? And what was his nationality? Do we know these things? Uh, No, I didn't Google image him. Dang. Um, I'm thinking shorter. Mm-hmm. Um, on the shorter side of height. Boris, are you a cutie patootie? Um, yeah. Like What's his I, last name? Levinson. I should have listened to that the first time. Yeah. Boris Levinson. <laughs> okay, tell me more. And you I Google will. image and I will I will go on. So he's, he's basically credited as discovering the benefits of animal-assisted therapy. So he found that when he was having therapy sessions with children who were withdrawn and uncommunicative, um, and he brought his dog along, the children would interact really positively. Side note, the dog's name was Jingles. <laughs> so <laughs> so that, that that's Boris. And according to the social support theory, which is the idea that like one is cared for and has like physical and emotional support from other people or beings as part of a social support network, um, animals are a source of social support and companionship, and that's necessary for our well-being. And according to self-psychology, which is a a theory that aims to understand individuals from within their subjective experiences, um, an animal or a pet can be a self-object, and that provides a sense of cohesion, support, and sustenance to a person's sense of self. And that explains why some animals are so crucial to a person's sense of self and well-being and confidence and that sort of thing. So hmm. do you have an image? Mm-hmm, I do. Tell me. So I couldn't find many images, but Boris seems like a very genteel soul. Oh, Oh, is that Jingles? Probably. Oh. It's a little Muppet dog. To explain what you guys are listening to visually. We can um, maybe post a picture. Yeah, we can. Yeah. Uh, it's this old dude that's just the sweetest looking He man. looks like a very gentle man. And he has a really good dog. Oh, such a good boy. A really good dog. <laughs> um, and also one of these articles that the image is linked to it says music art and pet therapy and i'm really into music therapy and pet and art therapy so i really want to do an episode about this in the future yeah but boris seems like he's going to be our dude for a lot of this stuff yeah go boris hashtag go boris um okay so animal <laughs> assisted therapy is a type of theory that therapy that involves animals as a form of treatment and the goal is to improve the patient's social, emotional, and cognitive functioning. Um, It's used in a variety of settings, um, everywhere from prisons to nursing homes to mental health facilities to schools or hospitals. It's really commonly, um, or a a common example would be canine-assisted therapy and equine-assisted therapy. Um, According to Edward O. Wilson's 1984 biophilia hypothesis, our attachment and interest in animals stems from the strong possibility that humans human survival was partly dependent on signals from other animals in the environment to indicate safety or threats. Like if you listen to our sense and perception series, the hearing episode, you might remember us talking about why bird song is um, so soothing to humans. And it's that if the bird is singing, then there's no danger around. I was going to say something. 
What's that? Do you listen to Ear Hustle? No, I've heard of it. San Quentin. In San Quentin Prison, they have pet therapy dogs. Oh, Mm -hmm. well, we are going to talk a little bit more about how dogs are used in prisons for therapy. Um, uh, Also, similar to what you were talking about earlier, um, animals do have different senses than humans do. Like they sense triggers of danger or a lack of danger that humans might not be perceptive to. And um, Wilson's biophilia hypothesis suggests that now if we see animals at rest or in a peaceful state, that would signal to us safety, security, and feelings of well-being, which in turn would trigger a state where uh, where personal change and healing is a possibility. Hmm. Yeah. I, I wonder, do you think dogs pay more attention to humans than humans pay attention to humans? Like, I don't know. For example, therapy dogs or like, um, what are they? Support dogs. They can tell when their owner is about to have a seizure yeah. or something like that. Um, can humans tell that? Uh, no, for sure, no. Also, uh, you can get dogs to assist people with diabetes, where the dog would actually be able to sense change in the patient's blood sugar. But to this is how alert us. No. No, legit. My niece has diabetes and they wanted to get her a therapy dog um, when she she was going into school because they weren't sure how she was going to deal with like, um, because she's so young, um, they weren't sure if she would have like the vocabulary or like the ability to recognize when she's going low or when she's going high and like be able to um, compensate for it where a therapy dog would be able to sense that change in the blood sugar and could alert the patient to going high or going low. Is it like a smell thing? I have no idea. Hmm. I don't know. I really probably should have looked that shit up before this episode. Um, I don't know. What is it about seizures? Like what does the, what is the dog able to sense to trigger? Uh, oh God, don't turn this around on that? me. I don't know. Oh, they just know. They just know. Um, they animals do have senses that humans fully don't have, though. That's true. Yeah. Uh, I was gonna. This is a good time to put this in here. We are currently a psychology only pod- podcast, but we were thinking, and we hope you listeners will agree, that we're gonna branch out into all of the sciences, like the science of life. Yeah. So that'll give us the ability to also research non psychological things, like, for example, what is the sense that allows dogs to know that our blood sugar is <laughs> dropping? Because it's not necessarily psychology. No, it's not. But I do think, like, uh, we we will explore other sciences and bring it back round to. Yeah, 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 yeah. So we'll always have psychology kind of like as our forefront. But I think we want to branch out and even like though incorporate we other areas of study. Yeah, like anthropology, sociology. Those are definitely things that we already are covering without and I saying think it, it. Overlaps quite a lot with psychology. Exactly. Um, like social psychology and sociology. Even though I am a psychology major, I still don't know the difference a lot of the time. Word. So, um, and also economics is a really psychological field of study too. Word. And like neuropsych is basically just chemistry and biology. So, yeah, anyway, that's something that we were thinking about. If you guys want to weigh in on that, let hashtag WKD. Yeah, and let us know. Yeah, word. Um, okay, so Sorry. no, 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 fine. Uh But back to animal-assisted therapy, which henceforth I'm going to call AAT because it's a mouthful. Um, So it's used to treat a lot of different conditions and to name a few, uh, psychological disorders, developmental disorders, dementia, cancer, chronic pain, ADHD, autism spectrum disorder, PTSD, major depressive disorder, even heart failure. Also, like we mentioned, seizures and diabetes. Are you Um, the one that's going to cover how ADHD therapy with dogs okay i'm or, going I was to wondering touch on if that i read just about a that. wee bit okay go just ahead. like a wee bit um and i'll do it right now um <laughs> <laughs> when treating adhd uh aat helps to decrease behavioral issues improve social skills and when used alongside um, cognitive behavioral therapy especially it can reduce the severity of adhd symptoms though it's important to note it doesn't actually like relieve ADHD in a long-term like treatment like it's not like a cure for ADHD or anything like that it doesn't cure it it just helps to relieve the symptoms that you would live with damn I know um but you know it's beneficial not to be discounted um 
canine-assisted therapy is a good non-invasive method for treating PTSD in veterans as well because the interaction with the dog provides social interaction for isolated veterans, first of all. Um, It also reduces symptoms associated with PTSD, like depression, anxiety, um, helps keep you calm, that sort of thing. Um, Canine assistance can also help to mediate oxytocin, which affects the social and physical well-being, and it also decreases blood pressure, and therefore it helps to reduce really detrimental symptoms of PTSD. Um, And there is a known limitation here that I want to mention. Canine-assisted therapy could actually obstruct uh, someone's ability to build their own way of keeping control over stressful situations if the dog's not there. So it is very beneficial. But but it could be a crutch. Yeah. Well, like, it just, there should be a balance there that, like, yes, you should use canine-assisted therapy, but, like, also ease yourself into developing, like, your own... um, Coping mechanisms? Those, that, yeah. That one. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Um, When working with people in the autism spectrum or with autism spectrum disorder, AAT can help reduce symptoms like aggressiveness, irritability, distractibility, and hyperactivity. Um, Therapeutic riding is really big here. Um, It's shown to have a positive effect on children with autism spectrum disorder. Uh, It helps to increase the child's ability to communicate and the slow swing motion of riding on riding a horse stimulates the vestibular system. And that's um, that regulates your sense of balance and spatial orientation. And that actually helps children with ASD produce speech sounds. So it can like work as a form of speech therapy. Yeah. I actually have a question. What's Um, that? Because autism, one of the characteristics characteristics of autism is that you're very like internally focused and that you don't connect with people outside of your body do autistic children connect or people um or people on the spectrum connect with animals then or are they also not able to um i'll probably get into this in more detail but yeah it does assist in like sociability as well because it's sort of like it gives you um the ability like you could where you might not know how to like react to physical touch from a human. Um, Like a dog is very soft or like a horse is very like, like it like is very soothing or calm. So like it gives you that sense of physical touch that Mm. you wouldn't normally get. And that can be an important like bonding experience and help to like give you um, a sense of sociability that you might not have if you, don't have the opportunity to interact with animals. Hmm. I'm going to do a much better job of explaining that okay. in a few minutes. Though. Since we're talking about autism spectrum, quick plug. The Good Doctor is a really good show about an uh, somebody. I think he has Asperger's or just is on the autism spectrum. I'm not sure. Um, an autistic surgeon. So he has um, savant syndrome. So he's like brilliant at surgery and like human anatomy and that sort of thing. Is but. that the one with... Um the guy from Bates Motel. Yeah. Yeah. Whoa. Yeah. It's a very good show. And also there's this podcast episode, which I will link in the description. Um, and it talks about somebody, a doctor actually with Asperger's who didn't realize she had Asperger's until quite later on in life. Um, and she talks about a situation where she, um, she sees two people to a couple trying to set up a sail on a sailboat and they're not able to do it like they're not doing properly and so she just like interrupts and she's like hey here I can help you and they were offended and she's like I never realized why they were offended um and then she talks about there's this electro current stimulation um therapy that it's actually still like in very early stage studies but it stimulates an area of your brain that actually makes you able to read people's like to be empathetic and like read people's emotions kind Whoa. of so like in the study they show her they show the person with Asperger's um like a video of a situation between two people and they're like try to understand this context and then they give you the electrode stimulation and then they're like now try to understand this context and it turns out that the video actually has a completely different meaning once the that part of your brain is stimulated like the autistic person realizes what they're missing out on wow yeah um sidebar to another episode I wonder if that would be a treatment for psychopaths in the future that's exactly what I was thinking about that as well like if it's a part of their brain that exists but is underactivated, then electrode therapy can definitely help with that and electrode therapy can help with a lot of things and is actually a really promising area of psychology 
And I think that maybe we should do an episode about that as well. But I'll let you continue on with your research before okay. I go down my <laughs> go down my garden path. I feel, yeah. Oh, and it's a total rabbit hole. We could have a whole that definitely a whole other episode. Um, okay. So then, just to wrap up, uh, working with dogs does help people with autism spectrum disorder by giving them a more calm environment, increasing positive uh, moods, and uh, like we were saying, helps with socialization. Um, so there are a few key animals that are most commonly used in AAT. Dogs, of course, is what we're going to talk about first. Um because we love dogs. Um, <laughs> when measuring the success and effectiveness of AAT, it's easier to do that if the goals are clear and identifiable. So some examples, in working with children, therapists rely on techniques like monitoring a child's behavior with the dog, um, like their tone of voice, indirect interviewing. Um, and these techniques are used along with the child's pet or another animal to gain information. So like before, a pet therapy can be useful the child and the dog would need to have like a sense of comfort they need to develop a sense of comfort with each other and that's easier to do if it's the child's own dog that's being used and um one applied technique that works well for gathering better information on the child's experience is to tell the child that the dog wants to know how they're feeling or wants to know what happened to them or something like that, Aww. which I know. Um, it can be used to assist children with mental health problems, both as a standalone treatment or alongside other more conventional methods. Uh, it can also work as a distraction method, like distracting the child from their pain. Um, it can bring a sense of happiness and pleasure and entertainment. Like if it's a child who is in the hospital because they're critically ill. Um, the dog, um, it, there's a whole dog thing at, oh my God, I screwed this all up. Kids? Yes. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. Cause it like Program. improves your mood. Um, it reinforces positive behavior, helping to decrease negative behavior. It just like, it's, it's truly beneficial. Um, and then in prisons, uh, as you brought up earlier, Marta. San Quentin, what up? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know why I said that. No. Nope. Just, I hate me. <laughs> AAT programs involve um, inmates working with a qualified handler to train a dog like through a structured goal-oriented program um overall aim is to relieve stress of inmates and workers enhance cognitive and behavioral capabilities improve social skills and to teach love patience and empathy um Dogs are I, such good boys. I know. I know. And girls. And this type of therapy is directly linked to increased physical and mental health benefits, improving self-confidence and interpersonal skills, and it improves the environmental conditions of living in a prison. Um, but there aren't a lot of studies that thoroughly examine AAT programs in prisons, especially for long-term effects. So in terms of like measuring the success rate of this, it is, it is difficult um, in prisons specifically. But in nursing homes, um, AAT uses the bond between animals and humans to help improve and maintain an individual's functioning. So like when people move into a nursing home and they're settling into that new environment, um, there's a trend that people uh, lose their sense of independence because like your everyday basic tasks are done for you. Um, you can become depressed, lethargic, uh, be more antisocial, especially if you're someone who doesn't get regular visitors or something like that. Um, a lot of uh, people moving into a uh, nursing home might become passive or withdrawn, agitated or inactive. And that sort of whole realm um, and AAT can be a really helpful um, way to motivate patients to be more mentally and physically active. Um, therapists or visitors who bring animals to their sessions in nursing homes are viewed as less threatening and that increases the relationship between the therapist or the visitor and the patient. Huh. Um, for patients with dementia, hands-on interactions with an animal are, the, are really important um, because it gives them an opportunity to have close physical contact with an animal like with a warm something non-threatening yeah um they're warm you can feel their heartbeat you can feel them breathing they have soft skin or they have like a, a soft fur coat lets you give and receive hugs um for patients that also need physical movement as part of their therapy, AAT therapists will plan tasks like walking with the dog or grooming them or just petting them, which even though it's very simple, like an elderly patient with dementia wouldn't normally have those interactions. It stimulates their mind in a way that it's not 
any longer being stimulated and it gives them a sense of meaning and belonging, um, gives them something to look forward to and just all around improves their quality of life in, in um, living with that condition and, you know, pardon me while I fucking sob because it breaks my heart, but it also fills my heart because doggos are the best. I have a question. What's that? How is that measured that it improves their sense of belonging and it gives them something to look forward to? Uh, that I don't have an answer for. Hmm. But that's a good question. Yeah. Like if you're someone with, I suppose you would have good days and bad days. Like some days you, um, might know exactly what's happening. Mm -hmm. Like you would know, oh, I have my session with Pepper today. Yeah. And I'm pumped because why wouldn't you be? Also, another thing that came up is while I was in school, I learned that there's a huge like academic versus real world gap, like science versus practice gap. So I wonder, even though it's found that these things are extremely effective, I wonder how often they're employed, like with the dog therapy in retirement homes because i know that my great aunt's retirement home definitely doesn't have a dog was it a retirement home or a nursing home um because there is a difference i think it's actually a nursing home okay um but well they have two like two wings one wing is for more independent able-bodied people and then the other wing is that's pretty common Yeah. yeah and so they both areas definitely don't have that and i think that it would be fantastic if they did so um if all if anybody out here is listening and is working in like geriatric nursing try to get that shit to happen yeah in your place i think it's it's really great horses are also <laughs> an animal that is frequently used as uh in animal assisted therapy it's called hippotherapy which i thought was really funny because hippos are actually an animal uh. um, but hippotherapy <laughs> is working with horses um it's defined as like physical, occupational, and even um, speech language therapy treatment strategy that uses horses' movement as part of an integrated intervention program to achieve desired outcomes for the therapy. Cool. It It's therapeutic riding. There was also a distinction when I was researching. There was a big distinction made about like some people, like hip- hippotherapy and therapeutic riding are not necessarily the same thing but like they're used synonymously constantly so it just is i don't know um basically i'm talking about therapeutic writing and that's like a lesson that's specifically adapted to um treat people with specific needs google tells me nothing about it either no i don't know why Eh. Uh, So AAT with horses has been used to assist people with physical, psychological, cognitive, social, and behavioral problems. Um, It's also been uh, approved by the American Speech and Hearing Association as a treatment method for people with speech disorders. Um, Equine-assisted psychotherapy uses horses to work with people who have mental health obstacles, and it often doesn't even involve riding. Um, It incorporates human interaction with horses as guides. Uh, The behavior of like a sensitive horse provides a vehicle by which the therapist can use to teach the patient coping skills. Um, And when using equine-assisted psychotherapy with children, kids who would normally shun physical or emotional closeness from other people are often able to accept it from a horse. And that has really beneficial results like improved socialization, conversations, self-esteem is improved, companionship and affection. Huh. That yeah. relates to, I think, even people who don't have mental health issues. Like, my sister is a nurse, and she works in the emergency unit of a hospital, and she owns a horse, and she's like, my horse is my therapy. Like, my horse is what keeps me sane. Oh, yeah. After a long, hard day, like, if anything, like, especially traumatic and, like, touching happens, she'll go and just, like, hang out at the barn with Wentworth. Is it's a name. really different kind of communication. Like, horses... Um, Again, like horses really sense something in you. Like if you're agitated, if you are stiff, if you like are carrying something uh, and you're trying to lead a horse, they won't walk with you. And so it helps you to um, like overcome your own obstacles. And like you, you have immediate like you can see that you're overcoming it because the horse is responding to you. The letdown. The letdown. 100 percent. 
that you should watch that listeners the letdown it's on it's on netflix there's also i wish i could remember the name of it i i volunteered with a film festival over the summer and i was reviewing films and one of them was a documentary about equine therapy Mm. and it was incredible it was this guy who had struggled with um addictions and um he had heard about equine therapy and so he went to uh uh facility and it's basically like it's a farm but like the animals are there specifically for this therapeutic and yeah yeah, like they're they're therapeutic riding horses and um again it wasn't even a session with riding it was just like he went into a ring and had to like he he found his partner horse he went into the ring with the horse and it was that sense of like i have to guide this horse around the ring and we're just gonna go and we're gonna work out our issues together and like you can do whatever you need to do in the ring if you need to break down crying if you need to talk if you need to just be still like whatever it's gonna be and yeah by the end of it you're leading this horse around and like it's it's letting you it's allowing itself to be led because it trusts you mm. and like building a relationship with an animal in which like you, you feel that it trusts you is just also, unbelievably rewarding. Also like horses are just so fucking big. So like to have something that humongous, just be like docile in your hands. They're so is, gentle. Yeah. Yeah. It's nice. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's, that's <laughs> my spiel about uh, equine assisted therapy. Hippotherapy. Or hippotherapy, yes. Um, Another animal that is often uh, talked about in animal-assisted therapy, dolphins. Basically, it's like swimming with dolphins. Um, There's a lot of advocates for dolphin therapy claiming really extraordinary results of the therapy, breakthroughs, all that sort of thing. It is very strongly criticized as having no long-term benefits, and it's being based on flawed observations. Um, And I'm bringing this up because it did come up in my research, but I want to point out like there are a lot of challenges to the benefits. Um, A lot of psychologists say that dolphin-assisted therapy is not effective for any known condition, (laughs) and it actually presents really big risks both to the patient and And to the dolphin. Because I feel like water is just a really dangerous territory to be in in general, and, like, to put somebody through, if somebody's, like, struggling already, to put them through the trauma of, like, being in water. Well, not trauma, but, like, water's just, like, hectic and stressful for a lot of people. Well, yeah, it's higher risk, and, like, uh, if there is something, like, for example, horses have been domesticated for a very long time, not not so with dolphins, so in terms of, like, what if, like, horses might have a, a horse might have, like, a uh, reaction, right? Like they might have a, a bad moment or something like that, but there's handlers there that understand horses and like we understand horses. We know how to like intervene. Yeah. Whereas dolphins, yeah, there would be handlers there, but like I just think it's less predict- predictable. Um, but there's also an ethical issue here. Um, a lot of the data on the effectiveness of dolphin assisted therapy is. Um, most of the research is conducted by the people who operate the program. So mm-hmm. the data collected is being collected through a biased eye by somebody who wants to say that it's effective. Ooh, actually, this brings up a really interesting point. Not at all anything to do with this episode, but just real quick. There were two, just to like demonstrate researcher bias, there were two groups of rats, like randomized rats, and one group of the researchers were told that these rats are, are excellent. They've like been, they're super intelligent rats. They've been crushing the maze every single time and they're faster, blah, blah, blah. And they're more intelligent. And the other group of researchers was told, this is just a regular ass group of rats, like just time their <laughs> time through the maze. These are just normal rats. Yeah. And the rats in the group with the researchers with the bias performed better and i'm saying this with air quotes because that's how much researcher bias can affect like timing statistics so if the rat like took a wrong turn or whatever the researcher would be like oh like let's cut this trial let's give it another try or whatever because yeah and so like just researcher bias itself has a really big effect on data that's one thing and so like yes the data might look good but if it's a researcher recording it who is biased, then they might actually make the data look that way. And that's a whole other thing about like um, self-fulfilling prophecy and that sort of thing. Um, But that is just a really exciting thing that you brought it up that. No, it's legit. And I now have two episodes of bullshit to recommend listeners. (laughs) Um, One is numbers and it kind of gets right to that, that like you can, 
make numbers say and do whatever it is you want numbers to say and do. Statistics is so fucked, yeah. actually. Um, they also have an episode about dolphins. Way. Yeah, it's it's really funny. It's like they kind of did it as a goof, okay. but it's also like legit, like very cool it's bullshit. Very um, cool. Anyway, <laughs> um, you should you should check it out. It's very funny at the very least. It's it's funny. So having said all of that, um, people do still support and want to engage in dolphin assisted therapy, and the goal is uh, to work with people with um, autism or Down syndrome or cerebral palsy um, with rehabilitation in motor function, speech, and language, and um, to work at maintaining and increasing a patient's attention span. Uh, So basically, the person would have a one-on-one session with a therapist and a dolphin in a marine park or some shit. Um, Yeah, so so that's dolphin-assisted therapy. It is a thing. It is available. It is also questionable in terms of Highly controversial. Yeah, it's it's controversial. It's just like having the people from the sugar industry conducting studies on whether or not sugar is bad for you. Yeah. 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 Um, So now I'm going to, I don't even know if you could call this a 180. I'm going to talk about something totally different. Um, But it was an aspect when I started researching and I was like, oh, this is awesome. I want to talk about this. Cat people versus dog people. Is there actually a difference? So actually, I think I commented on this. I don't know if you have your Google Doc up or if this is your own personal doc. But we talked about this a little bit or I talked about this a little bit in our social media episode. Oh, yeah, you did. Cat people and dog people posting on Twitter versus Facebook and like their ocean traits, which I read in your research. And you're going to talk about that. So I'm very excited. Yeah. Um, so a lot of people like do seem to identify themselves as a cat person or a dog person. Um, I've seen like how many lists on BuzzFeed (laughs) have you seen or like 25 best gifts for cat lovers in your life or are you a cat person or are you a dog person? And by the way, in doing this research, I was like, oh, well, I have to find out. So I took a quiz and learned that I am a cat inclined dog person. What does this mean? Proving once again, uh, BuzzQueed, BuzzFeed quizzes get you nowhere. BuzzQueed. (laughs) BuzzQueed. Excellent time waster. Um, Second side note, BuzzFeed does have some pretty great lists of of gifts to buy for cat and dog people. Um, Gift. I thought you were saying gif. Oh, no, but there are gifts in the... No, gifts. (laughs) Pardon my pronunciation. Gifts. Presents. Um, Yeah. If if anyone's looking for a gift for me, uh, I like the cats against cat calling tote bag. Uh, I would like the cat butt magnets, um, the basset hound dressed like Napoleon phone case, and the pugs not drugs socks. Any of the above would be, they go really, go over real well with me. A friend of mine has a pugs not drugs t-shirt. Really? Oh, that's great. Um, So... What is probably the largest, strongest study on the difference in personality for cats and dog people is a web-based study that was published by Sam Gosling, who is a psychologist at the University of Texas. So uh, like almost 5,000, it's like roughly 4,500 participants were asked if they identify themselves as a cat or a dog person, neither or both. Um, They were also asked to complete 44 question assessment that sought to examine the big five, the ocean traits. Uh, Do you want to remind the listeners, Marta, what the ocean traits are? Openness, conscientious, extroversion, agreeableness, and neuroticism. Excellent work. I wish I knew them that well when I was in my undergrad. (laughs) So on average, dog people were 15% more extroverted and 13% more agreeable. And that lines up pretty well with the idea that dogs are usually more sociable than cats. Because they're the best. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Dog people also tested 11% more conscientious than cat people, um, meaning like they display self-discipline or um, aim for personal achievement or something like that. And that lines up with the fact that dogs are more easily trained, like taught different commands and tasks than cats are. Marta climbs onto her high horse. (laughs) (laughs) Now, cat people uh, tested much differently on the personality scale. Uh, For cat people, they were 12% more neurotic, so they were more emotionally unstable. Um, Cat people were also 11% more open than dog people, like more open-minded concepts, a stronger sense of imagination, that sort of thing. That's interesting. Yeah, uh, cat people had a greater appreciation for world 
worldly concepts like art and emotions and possessing a stronger yeah, sense of imagination, like more likely to hold unconventional or unusual beliefs, strings from like tradition. Yeah. They um, drink their wine out of mason jars. Yeah, exactly. Um, researchers also asked the cat and dog owners um, if you had adequate living space and there were no objections from other people in your life and someone gave you like a dog or a cat as a gift, would you keep it? And the results found that two-thirds of exclusive cat owners would, set, would said that they would not accept a puppy as a pet, even if it was free and they had the space for it. But 70% of dog owners said that they would welcome a cat into their household. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Now, having said all of that, I thought all of that was super cool and I was really excited by all of that research. And then I found an article that like really heavily criticized that study. So I want to share that with all of you. Um Gender was the only personality affecting behavior that was really accounted for in the study for cat and dog people. What does that Um, mean? Well, and a lot of studies would measure for other things like their education or their income or their age or other things like that. But like they really only identified if people were male or female. Oh, so they didn't control for anything. Yeah. Okay. Um, And even then the gender differences really weren't emphasized in the study. Like the dog cat difference in neuroticism was greater for men than it was for women. But that wasn't like published and like, uh, I like to know those kinds of things. Yeah. Like, so cat own or cat people that are male are more neurotic than cat people who, who are, are female. female. Apparently, take that, dudes. Yeah. Um, only slightly more than half of the sample size expressed any pet personality at all. So like 57% identified themselves as either a cat or a dog person, but 43% didn't even choose a preference. They said, "I'm neither or I'm both." Huh. Yeah. And so did all that data get ex- discarded? Um, well, the scores for neither or both consistently fell between the extremes of the cat and the dog people. Like people who liked both cats and dogs were about as extroverted as people who liked just dogs. Yeah. Now, having said that, I did find some other research that seemed to account for more variables and other conditions, like pulling and isolating responses from just self-identified cat and dog people and not including the neither or both groups in the results. Um, And those results are still pretty consistent with the finding of Gosling's experiment. Um, Cat people tend to be more shy and solitary, uh, serious, nonconformist, but also pretty creative, sentimental, independent, self-sufficient that sort of thing dog people tend to be more grounded more pragmatic um, more outgoing and sociable and expressive and group oriented Uh, I found another article on Huffington Post that referenced a newer study that came out in 2017. It was a U.S. study that looked at cat and dog people on social media sites, um, places that you go to meet up with other dog or cat people. And it found that dog people tended to focus on their relationship with their pets and looking for like advice to do with dogs, whereas cat people were more about building communities and getting to know other cat owners. Fuck this cat. I want to know about the people. Well, just like let's let let's all of us people together bond over loving cats whereas the dog people were like i i have this with my dog like what do you do like do you think it's because dogs like you feel like dogs actually love you versus you're not entirely sure if cats love you i don't know i feel like it might be like especially for dogs because they are i don't know they require more of you in terms of Mm -hmm. raising them well um i think it's sort of like a mommy group or something like that. Like, I need advice. Like, my dog did this thing and I don't know what to do with it. Like, I'm yeah. need, I I'm looking for advice and, and um, good ideas about my relationship with my dog or, or my training tactics with my dog. Whereas cat people are just like, my cat, cats, <laughs> let's bond. <laughs> are cats that. funny when they do this? Yeah. Are cats cute when they do that? Yeah. yeah, that's true. I was I had something else on my mind, but I can't remember it. So I don't know why I'm even saying this. I need to stop with my words now. Oh, well, that is the end of my research. So <laughs> if you're ready to stop with your words, maybe that's good timing. That is good timing. <laughs> um, okay, yeah. So that is just about everything we had for our first episode of Animal Psychology. But I think we're going to just keep going with this. Yeah, maybe not right away, but I think that we'll circle back. Like we've got uh, some stuff coming up in both of our schedules so we may not have like a back-to-back 
pet psychology episode, but I think we'll circle back to this in the not too distant future. Yeah, I think next week you guys can expect a study study from Megan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is very exciting uh, because I'm going away to Amsterdam, so I will not be here to record. Yeah, I went on my like trip to get married and honeymoon and shit. So Marta deserves a break now as well. I was I was just like, nah, fuck this. Like, I'm not getting married, but I'm also just leaving. <laughs> so I'm actually going to Amsterdam with a friend of the podcast, Georgia, who yeah. used to edit our episodes. Shout out to so. Georgia. Yeah. Um, so that's everything for today's episode. As I already said, I wanted to thank you guys for listening. Uh, make sure to tune in next week for Megan's study study episode, which will be about the psychopathy and LSD experiment. Yes. Um, which is actually really cool. And it's actually a special request by my boyfriend, Calvin, because yeah. he's like, Marta, you interrupted Megan while she was telling about the LSD study. So I want to know more about that. So yeah, Calvin, this next one's for you. Like literally only for you. It's straight up. It's for you. <laughs> Um, also I just wanted to remind you guys if you are listening and you have any things that you want to tell us or you want to shout out to us we do have all of that social media who knew we didn't everywhere Instagram, Facebook, uh, Twitter Twitter. yeah we also have a Patreon page so patreon.com slash who knew we didn't and also there's always that hashtag on Twitter if you don't want to follow us you can just tweet out hashtag WKWD or at us at who Who knew knew we didn't didn't. Um, and that's about everything for this week, Megan. Yeah, I think that's that. Yeah, that's it. So thank you guys so much for listening. We love you and bye. Bye. Bye.